residents of the Russian city Rostov-on-Don cheering on the Wagner mercenary group on Saturday. It was a bizarre and unprecedented 24 hours. Wagner, a battle-hardened army of fighters for hire, took control of the city on Saturday, led by mercurial warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin. For Russian President Vladimir Putin, it was a clear challenge to his authority. He must have been as furious as he was astonished, not least because many locals seemed quite happy about it. Prigozhin's tanks and trucks continued along the motorway halfway to Moscow, meeting little resistance. The world began to watch. Was the Russian state about to unravel or slide into civil war? The head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, says his forces have taken Russian military facilities in the region of Rostov-on-Don. He threatens to move on to Moscow if Russia's top general and defense minister don't beat him. Then, as suddenly as it started, it ended. Wagner and Prigozhin just packed up and left. But why? On Monday, Prigozhin issued a rambling 11-minute statement, denying he intended to overthrow the Russian government, but doubling down on his criticism of the country's military leaders and their strategy for the war in Ukraine. Then, in a televised address, Putin responded, saying the mutiny was doomed to fail. And that the revolt left the country united. But has it? A warlord, essentially, Prigozhin, took over an entire city, a major Russian city, Rostov, and threatened to march on Moscow. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, what does the short-lived mutiny tell us about Russia and the war in Ukraine? I talked to Dan McLaughlin in Kyiv. Dan, this was a rebellion against the leadership of the Russian military. It was carried out by Yevgeny Prigozhin and members of his mercenary army who had been fighting in Ukraine. And it ended as abruptly as it started. How significant an event was this, do you think, for Russia, but also for the war in Ukraine? I think it was significant, maybe less for the impact it's had on Russia in terms of the the direct consequences of the uprising that we saw. Damage was done on the way, some aircraft were shot down, but, you know, that's um, relatively fleeting. I mean, what we haven't seen before is this kind of direct brazen challenge to Putin and his authority. The fact that someone could basically turn their tanks around and their air defence systems from Ukraine and start driving towards Moscow demanding that the defense minister be sacked, Sergei Shoigu, someone who's been very close to Putin over the years, and could even, you know, take over essentially the center of a major southern Russian city, that's Rostov, and then keep going towards Moscow, and that this would carry on for hours without any real serious intervention from the Russian military is really quite shocking. That's something that we haven't seen before in 23 years of of Putin's rule. Okay, so if we can go back a little, the... Prigozhin Rebellion, it began last Friday evening. Can you briefly remind us who Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, that's his group, the Wagner Group are, and explain what was happening with them in the months and weeks before that, the conditions that were created for this event to take place? So Prigozhin is uh, someone with a very colourful, you could say, background. He's a former convict who managed to position himself close to Putin 
through a catering company, of all things. His catering company managed to get contracts with the Kremlin and with the defense ministry. That's how he got his nickname of Putin's chef. But he kind of parlayed that access to Putin into the creation of, firstly, a kind of propaganda machine, which was involved in all kinds of things, including, if we remember, the interference in the the US election, which Trump won, and also into the creation of the Wagner Group. Now, the Wagner Group was initially an organization, a mercenary group set up to conduct interests on the Kremlin's behalf, essentially abroad, in the Middle East, in eastern Ukraine, in parts of Africa, which gave Moscow some plausible deniability, some distance from these operations, some official distance from the Wagner Group's operations. And it was initially made up of veterans, you know, people from the Russian security services and the Russian military, many of whom had had experience fighting in Chechnya, fighting in Georgia, fighting in eastern Ukraine. And they were, they formed quite a serious, hardened, battle-hardened, experienced fighting force. They had connections to the Russian intelligence services, and they were given a place to train, and they were given armaments through military intelligence, GRU, the GRU, as it was called, the Russian Military Intelligence Service. During this latest full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Wagner massively increased its numbers by going around prisons, including Prigozhin himself, going around Russian prisons and recruiting convicts, telling them that if you survive the war, if you fight for six months, you'll be given a pardon. So it became, you know, a much bigger fighting force. Even though many of those recruits, they had no experience and they weren't particularly effective, they essentially gave a lot of manpower to the Russian forces fighting in eastern Ukraine. Cannon fodder, other people have said. They didn't have very long life expectancy, these people being thrown into battle in places like Bakhmut. But over months and months, largely thanks to Wagner, Russia did manage to take Bakhmut in May. And that was the main achievement of Prigozhin when it comes to the battlefield. At the same time, however, he was turning on Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, and Valery Gerasimov, that's the chief of the general staff in Russia, and saying that they're essentially mishandling the war, that all the things that were going wrong for Russia and Ukraine were basically the fault of these two men. And specifically when it came to Wagner, they said that he said that these two were blocking the supply of ammunition to Wagner, which meant they were losing far more men than they should be, and that they would have taken Bakhmut much more quickly if they'd been given the weapons and the support that they needed. This criticism became increasingly vitriolic, foul-mouthed tirades on social media, calling them every name under the sun and saying that, you know, everything that was, as I say, going wrong for Russia in Ukraine was down to Shoigu and Gerasimov. This peaked really on Friday when Shoigu claimed that the Russian Air Force had launched an airstrike on Shoigu's orders on Wagner positions and that an unknown number of Wagner fighters had been killed. This was kind of the final straw for Prigozhin, he said, and it's time for us to go on what he called a march of justice towards Moscow, essentially to get rid of Shoigu and Gerasimov if he could. And these were the events that we saw playing out on Saturday as kind of the culmination of this conflict between Prigozhin and uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov on the other side, building up and building up, and ultimately leading to this uprising, which... uh, which took everyone by surprise at the weekend. We have seen the photographs of, it wasn't just an idle threat, we've seen the photographs of Prigozhin's tanks heading for Moscow, which is an extraordinary sight. We did, yeah. And we saw them surround the key buildings, the key strategic buildings in Rostov. Rostov is not just a big southern Russian city, it's the 
headquarters for the Russian military in the south of, of Russia. And it's close to Ukraine. It's where a lot of the operations in Ukraine are run from. And within hours of, of launching this March for Justice, as he called it, these tanks, these Wagner fighters had, had essentially taken over the center of Rostov without any opposition from the Russian military. It was really extraordinary. And then from there, they set off towards Voronezh, another major Russian city, and Lipetsk. And um, there was a kind of panic that we saw, I think, from the Russian authorities. Rather than there being a concerted, organized military defense to stop and to take out this, these rebels, we saw local authorities kind of digging up highways to create trenches on, on the main motorways in Russia leading to Moscow to try and stop them. We saw them parking trucks to, to block the highways. And the, the tanks just blasted through these trucks and carried on. So it was, you know, it was not just shocking in terms of the challenge itself to Putin, but the fact that the armed forces failed to respond to this threat for a number of hours. So what was the reaction then from Moscow itself, from Putin himself? Well, Putin, uh, having been silent for the first few hours of this, then made an address, a national address in which he said, we're facing an uprising. Some people have turned effectively on the Russian state while Russia's forces are facing this battle in Ukraine, a battle which Russia depicts and Putin depicts as being essentially the West versus Russia, fought out on the battlefields of Ukraine. These people, Wagner and particularly Prigozhin, have turned against Russia and the state and their comrades that until now they'd fought within eastern Ukraine. He said they would face the full force of the law, the full force of justice, and that they must be stopped. And he urged Wagner fighters who were with Prigozhin to abandon this campaign, to see sense and to come back to the side of, as Putin put it, the Russian people. But that didn't stop them. And, and, and they carried on for several more hours until finally, it seems, for reasons that are not entirely clear, Prigozhin decided to stop and uh, go back the way he came. Yeah, because it seemed as if all of a sudden it stopped. And we know that Vladimir Putin's spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peshkov, announced on Sunday that a deal had been struck whereby Prigozhin would end the mutiny and sort of exile himself to Belarus. Peshkov claimed that the deal was negotiated by the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. But do we have any idea what the terms are of this remarkable deal? For example, like I don't know what size the Wagner force is, but will they be going to Belarus with him? So according to what Prigozhin said in a statement that he released online on Monday, he stopped because he realized that to go any further for his Wagner troops would mean engaging in very heavy clashes with the regular Russian military, that there would be significant bloodshed, and he wanted to stop that and prevent that. But let's remember that on the way through Rostov, on the way towards Voronezh, Lipetsk, on the route towards Moscow, on this march of justice, as, as Prigozhin calls it, his forces had already shot down several Russian military aircraft killing, we think, 13 crew members. That's members of the Russian Air Force. So blood had already been shed. So we don't know whether that was really the thing that stopped him. It seems likely that he hoped for maybe to get some signals of support from generals that are seen as being close to Wagner in the Russian military. Maybe they didn't come out on his side behind the scenes. Maybe he hoped for some support in the political elite in Moscow, and, and that also didn't materialize. So at some point he realized that this wasn't going to work. He'd gone as far as he could go. And 
probably that the main demands he was making for the replacement of uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov, those demands weren't going to be met by Putin. So he decided to try and cut his losses and, and get out of there. He also clearly wanted to maintain the autonomy or independence of Wagner outside the Russian military. And if we look what's happened now, it seems like Prigozhin's actually failed on all counts. Putin says that Wagner is being absorbed into the Russian military, that any of the fighters, even those that took part in this uprising, can join the Russian military and sign contracts with the army. Prigozhin seems to be heading into some kind of exile in Belarus. It's hard to imagine that he will maintain any direct control over Wagner from Belarus, given what's happened. That also means losing control probably of the commercial interest that Wagner has had from its kind of protection operations that it's been running in parts of Africa in the Middle East. And also, we saw just after Putin made his speech last night, we saw him also holding a meeting with top security officials in Russia. And Shoigu was there at the table. So whereas I think it's it's widely believed, probably in the Kremlin too, that Shoigu has had a bad war in Ukraine and Gerasimov too, it seems that they're set to remain in place for the foreseeable future. That meeting, that televised meeting with Putin suggests that it was kind of a show of approval towards Shoigu from Putin. So at the moment, it doesn't look like like any of the things that uh, Prigozhin aimed for are, are actually going his way. So can we just talk about Putin for a minute? Now, a lot of observers have pointed out that, you know, there wasn't an outpouring of support for Putin in the face of what looked like to be a significant rebellion, either among the public or maybe more worrying for Putin and his generals, the military. How much damage has this done to his credibility and his authority? I think it has done significant damage. I mean, we'll only find out over time whether he can restore it somehow. Because until now, he's always enjoyed this position of power where he has been the the ultimate kind of arbiter between different interest groups. There have always been rival factions in the military, the intelligence services, in business, in politics, circling around Putin, trying to win his favour, trying to, to get access to certain money flows, to certain flows of weapons, whatever it might be, influence, money, political power. And he's always kind of placed himself above that and let them fight it out amongst each other. And then he's kind of chosen the winner or he's sided with whichever group has emerged as the strongest. But he's never faced a challenge like this. He's never had any of these groups basically turn their tanks towards Moscow and start heading for him and for them to make it so far without being challenged by the security forces that he is supposed to control. As Mikhail Khodorkovsky an exiled tycoon said, this is something new because people in Russia have seen that you can drive through Russia with tanks and not be stopped by Putin until you get relatively close to Moscow. This is a sign of weakness that we haven't seen before with this regime. And it just remains to be seen how other people will exploit that. Undoubtedly, there are people who feel like Prigozhin did. There are undoubtedly people in the Russian elite who feel like this whole enterprise, this whole invasion of Ukraine was a complete disaster. Will they take this as an opportunity to move on Putin, to push him to one side, to replace him with someone? We just don't know. We'll have to see. But undoubtedly, as regards this kind of mystique that Putin has developed over the years, that he is untouchable in Russia, I think that has taken a severe hit with the events of the last few days. Dan, Vladimir Putin again addressed the nation on Monday night. What did he say this time? And why did he say it? 
So Putin finally came out on late on Monday evening and addressed the events of Saturday. And it seemed to be an attempt to kind of dispel the widely held opinion that, that Putin had dealt with this in a very weak way. So let's remember that on, on Saturday night, the Kremlin announced effectively that the people involved in this would walk away scot-free. Charges would be dropped against all the Wagner fighters and Prigozhin. Prigozhin would go, go to Belarus and everyone would carry on essentially as normal, as if nothing had happened. And the big question was, where was Putin and what was Putin doing all this time? He'd come out earlier in the day and made a very strong statement on Saturday afternoon saying that this uprising was a betrayal, a betrayal against the Russian people, a betrayal against the Russian military, and that the people who were involved in it would face the full force of the law and be held accountable. And then it seemed during the day he changed his mind. So on Monday night, he came out and said that actually during the events of Saturday, he had been fully engaged, that he'd been talking to the government, he'd been talking to, to the key people involved in handling it on the Russian state side, that even though he wasn't visible, he was telling the Russian people he had actually had full control. He'd been monitoring everything and working on everything all the time. And that his key aim was to avoid bloodshed. So he essentially suggested that he allowed this column of Wagner armor and soldiers to move through Russia until they got to a point where they realized that they should change their minds before they got into a serious clash with the Russian military and there was major bloodshed. That was essentially the way he portrayed it. It wasn't that there was inaction, that there was uh, a passiveness on the side of the, uh, of the Russian authorities. They were just giving the Wagner guys time to realize that they'd made a mistake. And now when they realized they had made a mistake, the regular Wagner fighters could join the Russian army, they could leave and go home, or they could go to Belarus with Prigozhin. He also suggested that the leaders of this uprising, which we assume is Prigozhin, even though he didn't name him, would face charges. Subsequently, we found out on Tuesday morning that the FSB, Russian Security Service, is actually closing the case. So it seems like Putin just wants to kind of make this go away. And so this was Putin's attempt, somewhat belatedly, to show that even though his control over the situation hadn't been visible, he had been there, he had been managing everything, everything was under the Kremlin's control. And now we just put that to one side and we focus on the invasion in Ukraine, which, as we know, is going very badly for Russia. And it looks like they're all going to walk away scot-free. There are going to be no legal implications, as far as we can see, for all the people involved in this. The FSB has said that the, the case is essentially closed today. And Putin is, is saying, it's time to move on. We got over this. This was something that effectively brought us together as a nation, that we saw this challenge, we faced it down, and we're stronger as a result of it. At the same time, you have people who are being prosecuted and jailed simply for putting posts on social media that criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's illegal, essentially, to criticize the military and the political authorities over this. You can't even call it a war. You have to call it a special military operation in the Kremlin's term. At the same time, you've got opposition figures like Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Karamurza, Ilya Yashin, spending years behind bars, in Navalny's case and Karamoza's case, decades potentially behind bars for 
standing peacefully against Putin. That is the stark encapsulation of where the Russian legal system stands today. Coming up, what does the uprising mean for the war? I'll continue my conversation with Dan McLaughlin. Now, you're in Ukraine, you're in Kyiv. What has been the reaction there? Well, people watched here with great interest, obviously, and with some hope that this would kind of lead to a some sort of implosion in Russia, in the elite in Russia, you know, infighting which would lead to the potentially the destruction of the Putin regime and would potentially seriously hamper Russia's military activities in Ukraine, maybe even in the future, in the near future, lead to some kind of uh, cessation of hostilities from the Russian side. That didn't happen, obviously, as we've said. This was over in a few hours. And Ukrainians were disappointed by that. They, they were kind of laughing at it, saying, you know, Russians can't even do an uprising properly. We can't even rely on them to get this right. So Ukrainians have lots of worries of their own. You know, the missile strikes are continuing on Ukrainian cities. The counteroffensive is continuing to make progress, albeit slow progress, in eastern and southeastern Ukraine. And, you know, when this uprising ground to a halt, a couple of hundred kilometers or whatever it was outside Moscow, Ukrainians kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, you know, we can't rely on Russia to, to stop what's happening here. Once again, we, we realize this has just kind of reaffirmed the fact that we have to deal with this ourselves and we have to beat Russia on Ukrainian territory and kick the Russian military out of areas that it's occupied. So, as you say, the Ukraine's long-awaited uh, counteroffensive begun in recent weeks. And there have been reports of Ukrainian armed forces taking back small amounts of territory. What is the latest from the front line? The latest today is that um, Ukrainian military says they've retaken one more village in southeastern Ukraine, that takes it to nine, I think, at the latest count, since the counteroffensive began earlier this month. That's over an area of about 130 square kilometres, we think, that have been liberated since the start of the counteroffensive. So it's relatively slow progress, but um, the Ukrainians are saying that it's this is kind of vital, almost preparatory work for the next stage, the bigger stage of the counteroffensive. This is kind of opening up probing areas, finding where Russian weaknesses are and setting up, creating a kind of bridgehead from which Ukraine will be able to push further into southeastern Ukraine, probably pushing down towards Crimea, trying to break the territory, the land bridge that, that Russia has formed from the Russian border to occupied Crimea. At the same time, there's still heavy fighting taking place around Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Kyiv's forces are trying to take the flanks around the city and potentially encircle the, the, the Russian forces that uh, occupied Bakhmut last month. So it's relatively slow progress. But at the same time, I think both sides see that the main battles of this counteroffensive still lie ahead because the main body of Ukrainian reserves has not been sent into battle yet. And at the same time, the main Russian defensive lines that Russia has built over months in occupied territory, they have not been challenged yet. The, the Ukrainian forces have not reached those main Russian defensive points that Russia has been able to build over months of occupation. So I think we're looking at something that will stretch right through the summer, well into the autumn, potentially, before we get a clear idea of, of what Ukraine can really achieve in this counteroffensive that they've been preparing for for many months. Dan McLaughlin, thanks very much. Thank you. 
That's it for today. For more coverage of tension in the Kremlin and the war in Ukraine, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode is produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.